In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, God sent Moses back to Egypt to to demand freedom for the people. Moses presented the Lord's command for one thing, not just to let my people go, as if he were fulfilling a doctrine of merely social liberation, but to let my people go to worship me. Pharaoh doesn't exactly refuse Moses outright. Rather, he tries to negotiate with Moses, and first to request that only the men go. Moses answered, With our young and our old we must go, with our sons and daughters. With our flocks and herds we must go. It is a pilgrimage feast to the Lord. Moses sees that it is necessary that the entire people and all their belongings be disposable before God's will. So as Pharaoh continues to negotiate, Moses has to deny him each and every time. It isn't just a matter of taking the men into the wilderness who are going to offer the sacrifice, or just the livestock necessary to be sacrificed. The Lord demands a total openness on which we cannot put any prior limit. Since the purpose of the people of Israel was to be set apart and holy for the true worship of God, it's necessary that there be no built-in limit of their worship and sacrifice. Because ultimately, it is not about offering God some merely external formality, as Pharaoh seems to have thought, but the people's interior worship. As a matter of fact, to know God, to love God above all things, and to praise him is the highest function that man can engage in. In the Garden of Eden, before his untimely fall, man's duty was already to love and to praise God. Even after the fall, that same duty persists. This is why God chose one people and set them apart from all the other nations, that, as a light to the nations, they might lead back all of the other nations to God. The first reading attributes the devastation of the land to the people's failure in their primary task, to be a people set apart to worship the Lord. Since the people won't worship God as they ought, but instead profane the Holy Sabbath, God allows their enemies to conquer them so overwhelmingly that they are literally unable to break the Sabbath any further. This is an ironic fulfillment of the commandments, because the Sabbath is not something kept outwardly through idleness, but in the first place, inwardly, through devout worship. Remember, Jesus said that the Sabbath is not so, that the Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath. Instead of regarding the keeping of God's commandments as the basis of happiness and the entryway into life, They regarded it as a burden which oppressed them and which needed to be thrown off. They were liberated from cruel slavery under Pharaoh in order to be free to worship God in the land, 
but regarded this worship itself as a slavery. But in the light of the entire history of salvation, we understand that God's deepest desire is not the imposition of a difficult and burdensome external standard, but that hearts freely love him and give him praise. That is why he invited the Israelites to return to their land so they could rebuild the temple and there, in fulfillment of his promise, worship him finally from their hearts. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The lie first told by the serpent and perpetuated on account of sin through the ages is that God's commandments are death to us. But Jesus reveals that God so loved the world that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. This is not life of merely a quantitatively lengthened dimension, say, an, inter- an interminably long human life, but of a qualitatively higher sort. Eternal life is divine life. And it is through that divine life that we have power to love God above all things and to keep the commandments. There is no dichotomy between keeping God's law and self-fulfillment. Grace makes this possible. Even now, and what's more, for all eternity, friendship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, simply is and will be all our joy, our happiness, and our bliss. Unfortunately for us, just like for the Israelites, God's law doesn't always seem like a path of happiness. And if it were just an imposition of an external standard, which we were expected to live up to on our own power and strength, then the gospel would not be good news. But Jesus speaks of another source of power and strength. Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. This refers to his passion. The entire series of events of his suffering leading up to his death on the cross. Jesus is telling us that his passion has intrinsic power to to communicate life to us through faith. Consider the manner of his life and how the passion contains the sufficient medicine for our sins. Having preached the gospel of God's love, Christ gave himself over to death for our sake. He underwent humiliations and shame, was stripped naked, and nailed to the cross to conquer our pride. He bore these offenses with the gentleness of a lamb led to slaughter, to atone for our anger. He bore the cruel stripes of the scourging to heal our sins of sensuality and lust. He bore all of this in obedience to the Father to heal our disobedience. And as the antidote to all of our hatreds, 
He bore it with the love of charity for God above all things. What excess of love to pour out his entire life for us when only a drop of blood would have sufficed. We might ask ourselves, how can I share in the benefit that the passion of Christ brings? During the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the crowds flocked about him, hoping only to touch the tassel of his cloak and so be healed. But the passion of Christ is distant, not only by land and sea, but by almost 2,000 years. How can someone touch a past event? Jesus offers us the solution in his image of the bronze serpent. Just as the Israelites received back full health while gazing on the bronze serpent in the desert, so too we make spiritual contact with the passion of Christ when we gaze on the cross in faith. Through the power of faith in the sacraments, we come into such a real spiritual contact with the passion of Christ that it is as if we are standing beneath the cross with the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. John the Beloved. One privileged way for the baptized to come into contact with the power of the passion of Christ is through the sacrament of penance. The specific effect of this sacrament is the forgiveness of post-baptismal sins. By freeing us from our sins, it lets us participate in the love of God with greater freedom. The Church asks us to partake of this sacrament at least once a year. If you haven't yet availed yourself, consider that now is the acceptable time. Another is the Eucharist. St. Thomas Aquinas called the Eucharist an extension of the Incarnation, since the Eucharist prolongs the bodily presence of Christ among us. In this sacrament, which we are about to receive, we come into contact with that same true body, which suffered for us, was given up for our sake, died, and was raised in glory. Even now, Christ stands in heaven at the right hand of the Father with those five glorious tokens of his passion in his hands, feet, and side, uttering, without words, the most eloquent prayer on our behalf, that what he won by sovereign right through his passion might be ours through his continued high priestly intercession. <laughs>